Welcome to the Relatively Damaged Podcast by Damaged Parents, where slurring, crooked, weak people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100%. Every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than. Like we aren't good enough, we aren't capable, we are relatively damaged, and that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage. Maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There is a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person. The one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me. Not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Kawan Glover. He has many roles in his life, son, brother, uncle, author of Overcoming Adversity, and more. We'll talk about how at 20 years old he had to have brain surgery went back to school a week later, had a stroke, the mass grew back, more surgeries, and how he continues to heal. Let's talk. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Welcome, Kawan, to Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. How are you today? I am great. If I was doing any better, there'd be two of me. I like that answer. I really, really do. So you're here about a struggle. And one of the interesting things I noticed on your pre-interview answers or the question sheet was that you said you're still trying to find your balance after your struggle. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, because I, I just feel like healing and recovery is a lifelong journey. So there are moments where I feel like, oh, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. This is exactly where I need to be. And then I still have moments where I'm like, I wish I wasn't here. This shouldn't happen to me. This isn't fair. So balance, tranquility, peace of mind, those things are sometimes can be, they can be fleeting, but I do know where my sense of balance lasts. Just maintaining that balance can be a little tricky sometimes. Yeah, it can be. I, I agree with that 100%. Okay. So tell us about your struggle whether it started a long time ago or recently you start where you think that story begins and then we'll just kind of work through it to where you're at now yeah so i I think about life like a kind of up and down i used to talk about it through a mountain and valley perspective and when i graduated high school i was on top of the mountain i had a 4.0 was number six in my class i got into all the schools i needed to minus one and, you know, I had the girl, I had the grades, I got into college, like everything was working. And then when I hit 20, I was in university my sophomore year and my brain just was like, 
yeah, no, we're not working right now. And I'm like, uh, okay. So I'm telling doctors to fix it. And I had, you know, the brain surgery. But in between that is where the struggle arose. In between those three brain surgeries, in between the stroke and things like that. Because I had bouts of depression, anxiety, and opioid addiction. And it was in between those mountains of successes or recovery or beating something that you find yourself in that mental space like, this isn't fair. How could this happen to me? My life was so great. Everything was so perfect. I got everything I need. I was two parent household. How can this be misfortune fall upon someone who never did anything egregious? And that usually that I, I come to understand that's your ego talking. So uh, dealing with that trauma left over from those difficult situations was often a very challenging feat. And I still deal with some of that traumatic residue. But the hope that you find once you're able to see the, the purpose in your journey is where I find those moments of balance that we were talking about. Right. So so give us an example of the first time you felt like you were going into one of those deep valleys and what happened and, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So a, a notable one is after the second surgery. It happened August 1st, or no, October 1st, 2015. And that summer... I went back to school in the spring, so that's January to sometime right before the summer. And then that summer, I just felt this massive bout of depression just befall me. And because I had been able-bodied most of my life, been able to be independent, able to do for myself, my reality of what my life was and my expectation of what my life was supposed to be were in clash, were in conflict. So it warped my perception of you know reality, and I didn't sleep in my bed. I slept on my couch and watched Sons of Anarchy. And if you're familiar with that show, you know what happens at the end. And at, I'm not. Okay, so spoiler alert for anyone listening: the main character kills himself at the end, mm. and that thoughts of suicide started to creep in. And I just felt like, you know, my life should be over. There's no purpose for me left. I don't understand why I had to deal with this, but. Then I had a friend of mine, more like a brother. He he walked, like my apartment door was unlocked and I had just didn't care. And he kind of just burst open, burst through the door. And I didn't look up and I was just like, well, I guess this is it for me. This is the way I go out. So I'm thinking I'm getting robbed or something like that. And I'm just like, eh, guess this is it for me. And so he- were, did you have the stroke before? So, because I heard you say you went from able-bodied to dis- to having a disability. And that's what caused the dis- depression, or did you have depression before that? Okay, so let me clarify the timeline. So they discovered a mass in my brain in 2014, and then I had my first brain surgery to remove that in August of 2014. A mm. month later, due to arrogance, being young and hubris of youth, I went back to school a week later. And then a month after that, I had a stroke. And that's what really uh, started affecting my right side, which is, you know, the deficits and things like the physical inability. And then the mask grew back a year later. So in October of 2015, the mask grew back. I wanted to have another procedure. And, you know, it was just like, wow. But before that, so I guess after the stroke, but before the second surgery is when I had that big bout of depression. And then I had to follow up another surgery and that put me in another spiral. And then that second surgery, I was introduced to opioids which led to the substance abuse. So the timeline is just to clarify, brain surgery, stroke, depression, then another brain surgery. That was so, the first part. Right. It, so you had this 
the brain surgery, when they told you you needed to have brain surgery, what did that feel like? Do you remember the feelings that happened at that point? I remember the first time they told me that, hey, there's something in your brain that's not supposed to be there. And that I think I was 19 or 20 at the time. I'm just like, okay, so are you going to fix it or what? Like, what are you telling me about this? Like, I had no, I'd never been injured or to that capacity before. I never had anything like that. So I'm just like, I don't know why you're telling me, just fix it so I can move on with my life. And they did. And I was able to get up and walk away from the surgery with some weakness, you know, as I'm recovering. But again, I never experienced anything like that. So I wasn't adherent to the policy that you should probably not go back to school. You should probably rest and recover. And then I just got up a week later, went back to school and returned to everything that I was doing. But at that time, I had no perspective about what that could mean for someone at that age because I felt like I was superhuman like right. at my prime so it's no way this can really stop me but it wasn't until honestly my third surgery in 2017 where I was just like oh maybe I'm not invincible maybe this is a thing telling me to slow down and do something else with my life right so the initial surgery after the surgery you felt pretty good it sounds like and decided I don't need to listen to the doctors and I'm gonna go back to school right now because it sounds like you had a 4.0 you were determined to succeed all of that great stuff yeah yeah that you know I just didn't feel like this could stop me this was not supposed to stop me so as a young male black man like I'm good I don't need to check in with people like I'm independent like I'll write my independence so it wasn't even a second thought for me to go on and do what I wanted to do. But uh, in hindsight, it's always 2020, you know that maybe you should have slowed down just a little bit. Well, right. And it sounds like you were really driven to succeed. So it actually kind of makes sense to me, or it really makes sense to me that you would go back to school. You were determined. I mean, it sounds like you had a, a plan. Yeah, I absolutely did. But um. Also, looking back, I am able to give myself a little bit of grace and understanding, hey, I wasn't the, at the same level of maturity and understanding I am now. Actually, Grace is my sister's middle name, and her first name means grace, so she's double grace, and I dedicated my book to her. But understanding that, you know, we make these mistakes, these blunders in life, but they're meant to teach us a bigger lesson, and I'm learning that lesson every day that if I inspire one person, if I save one life, then this journey was worth more than anything else I've ever been given in my life. Yeah. Isn't that true? Okay. So you have this stroke. Do you, I'm intrigued by, I think there was a Ted talk of a woman who explained what it felt like to her. Do you remember what it felt like when you were having this stroke? I mean, did you even know what was happening? Do you have any recollection? I can describe it in very vivid detail because I never lost consciousness. So that day was probably September 17, 2014. I had a headache for 13 hours and it was like a debilitating headache. Like someone had a jackhammer to my head and I went to the bathroom. I thought I had to throw up. I actually was just throwing up water and that's never a good sign. Uh, my vision went blurry. And when I tried to climb back in bed, my right side my my leg shot back. So I kind of fell over and then my arm went out. So I just right side useless and then i rolled over and i called my parents and i was just like i think i'm having a stroke 
and I can tell, I can hear when my speech started to slur, and even now I still have some residue with my speech from all these procedures and the stroke, but it was, it was scary because I was not able to control parts of my body that I'd always been able to control. I was alone. I didn't necessarily know what to do. So I called the hospital, called my mom. Luckily, I was still in the right enough mind to do those things. But it was an event that I, it's hard to put into words except what happened. But the feelings were like fear and like surprise and like what is actually happening, confusion. That messed up. It was really an event I never want to live through again. Yeah. So it sounds like what was happening with your body, your brain was telling your body to do things and your body wasn't responding the way you wanted it to. And you said you were surprised you could still make those phone calls. So you said your right side went, so you were having to do everything with your left hand. And is that your more dominant side or, or was your right, your dominant side? My right is my dominant side, but now I'm writing with my left hand, drawing my left hand, reading with my left hand, doing mostly everything. I recently started going back to opening doors with my right hand, but at, at the time, to have your dominant side taken away from you, it's just like, I'm not prepared for this. But yeah. you adapt and you adjust and you move on with life. Yeah. So how did you do that? So you have this stroke, right side's gone. Now you're limited to your less dominant side. You're, you were confused and scared and all of that. How did you keep going? I think this is a credit to my high drive for success okay. because I knew that like a part of me wanted to quit, but then this other side is often louder. It's like, you still have to finish school. You still have things to do. And I wasn't even thinking about back then inspiring people or writing a book or anything like that. I was just like, this will not stop you from becoming the man you're supposed to be. You know, I used to have dreams of being a paleontologist and being president. And who knows, I might still be president one day. But there was a deep desire to succeed and overcome the odds. So that driving force, also the people around me, my family, friends, the people in the, the re uh, rehab hospital uh, that encouraged me to continue to not treat me as a disabled person treating me as a person and encouraged me to continue that was really important okay i heard something really interesting right there is the people around you didn't treat you as if you were disabled what do you mean by that and how can other people do that with people who have a physical disability so like one of my best friend anthony robinson when i'm walking around and see me limping or like you know kind of down on myself he doesn't allow me space to like if I fall, he doesn't like laugh or he doesn't like pick me up. He's like, get up. Sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it's people that like, hey, do you need help? Or encourage me to ask for help. And that's another level of honor, another piece of vulnerability that people don't think exists. Also, not making everything like reacting in a fearful manner whenever I don't do something 100% right or their fear of falling like, showing that apprehension about me doing things really uh, defeats my confidence. So allowing me to uh, work through something, not struggle to but work through and allowing me to accept challenges and allowing me to figure things out is really helpful for building that, that uh, perseverance, building that resilience and allowing me also to try things out that I haven't tried before that I have stopped doing and acknowledging my progress. That's a really big, because when people around you stop, 
acknowledging your progress, you're more likely not to acknowledge it, and then you stop recovering. Then the healing stops. So I'm encouraging, but allowing them to figure things out is really important. So allowing for the struggle is important when someone you love has it or gets a new disability, if you will, that they're not used to. And excuse in my mind, I want to say that's helping them keep their dignity, right? That they're still human. It sounds like that struggle is important and not that you couldn't ask for help, but you will when you need it. Is that right? Or Yeah, because I think you only grow through adversity, struggle, and challenge when everything is given to you. Like if you were laying in bed and people were serving you all day, your body would be like, well, what is the need to build muscles in your leg? They would atrophy. So I think constantly pushing against that, that, uh, that atrophy that builds up in your limbs or builds up even in your mindset, challenging that, growing that, stretching that a bit, strengthening that, giving the person the opportunity to help them physically, but also mentally and emotionally that they still are able to. Because a lot of times I like to say, identify disabled, but I'm not disabled because I'm just able to do things differently. Okay, so I, I think I heard you say, in some sense, don't identify as disabled, identify as differently abled. Yeah, and like a lot of people, even with a lot of mental health challenges, they say, I am depressed or I am angry or I am anxious. You are you. You are not those things. You may feel anxious or you may feel depressed or you may feel angry or you may struggle with a disability, but you are not disabled because you're still here. Right. You're still here and you are still very much able. So I identify with that community, but I am just able to do things differently. So I heard someone the other day was saying that to me that they didn't think that disabled people didn't like the word hero. I'm just interested in your perspective because I'm wondering if, yes, you know, being differently abled is, is one thing. I also think it takes a lot of bravery and courage in this normal, not normal world, but in the world that exists for able-bodied people, it, that it takes courage and bravery to, to live in that world in a differently abled body. What are your thoughts on that? You know, actually I was, in my TikTok comments, somebody put hero, and I didn't think anything of it. But thinking deeper, I think hero is some mythological, fictional thing, and I'm a real person. It does take courage. It does take bravery. But heroism is something that's something fictional. Like, you go beyond and beyond, and you're, like heroes, it, it puts a person on a pedestal that they didn't ask to be put on. I'm simply adjusting and adapting and thriving on something that happened to me. And being a hero makes you like, sometimes people don't want to be seen as a mythological figure. Sometimes people want to just be seen as a person that has this condition, but continues to use it for a better good. So I identify with being courageous. I identify with bravery, but sometimes heroism can seem like it puts them out of reach with everyone else. And I'm no better than the next person, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. I think I see your perspective in that even though it's heroic to live in the world and it takes that bravery and courage, maybe there's a, a fear of being put on a pedestal and then failing instead of acknowledging that you're also just another human being on this planet trying to get through this complex human experience. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the emotions and depression. 
like I may have acted or I am acting heroically, but I am not a hero. I am me. I'm a person. I'm a human. And I have disabilities. But I act heroically using courage and bravery to move on with life. And, you know, I have no problem with people calling me a hero. I just don't self-identify as a hero. Right. Yeah, no. And I'm trying to I just wanted to understand a little bit about that, because I think I do agree in that it is heroic to do those things, to get up every day and participate in this world. That's that's difficult to participate in, even without a disability and with a disability, it's just a little bit harder or sometimes a lot harder. Right. So so I could see where using the term hero could could mean a pedestal and i'm definitely if as any human is going to fall off that pedestal at some point so i would rather have heroic actions than be a hero does that make sense if you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form Right. So so I could see where using the term hero could could mean a pedestal. And I'm definitely if as any human is going to fall off that pedestal at some point. So I would rather have heroic actions than be a hero. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think also. Uh, disabled community when people are doing something with their disability often are in a place where they empathize with a lot of the people and it's difficult for them to say i'm a hero because i did this but what about this person with this disability and then i also think they feel like calling them a hero is taken away from some of the everyday heroes like policemen firefighters and things like that like i'm just doing what i can with what i have around me there are people that go out there and save lives for a living and they are the true heroes and a lot of times accepting or adopting the hero is like damaging to that humility that you develop and can kind of steer you down the path of adopting the hubris that i had before all this happened if that makes sense i think so i think so okay so you had your stroke after the stroke is when the mask came back again yeah a year later, after that best bout of depression, it came back again. I went into my doctor, Jonathan Sherman at GW Hospital in Washington, D.C., and he kind of put it down, just like, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's grown back and it's grown bigger and faster. And instantly, my mom broke down and my dad was in a room kind of holding her. And then I guess this is a heroic act. I just kind of like signed me up for the next surgery. And everyone in the room was kind of like, you know, one think about it or maybe contemplate or you know what your option i was just like sign me up for the next surgery and there's something called a messiah complex and i think i had gone so far into my humility or whatever you whatever mindset i was in then that like you're you become like you have to feel like a martyr so at, at that point i was just like if i don't wake up if i don't make it through the surgery Hopefully my story can inspire others, but I'm tired of fight. I'm tired, tired of, of having to deal with this. I'm not dealing with this brain mass. I'm tired of dealing with the possibility that I can die from it. Like, I just don't want to, I don't, I'm tired of fighting. So hopefully my story and my sacrifice can be 
of inspiration to other people. And I had the surgery on October 1st, 2015. And this is where it gets a little spiritual or messianic or whatever you want to call it. Like this could be in a movie. I had a dream and I remember and I never say it differently that in, in between the surgery, I had a dream and it's a chapter on my book called The In-Between, two pages. And in this dream, I wake up in like this white void and I'm wearing a jean jacket and hoodie. And I used to box when I was at Maryland. So I'm throwing punches and I'm like, oh man, everything's working. Like, oh, this is awesome. And then it starts to rain. But the rain is like black, like the color black. And then it starts to rain and I stick my hand out, but it's not touching me. So then I start to float up and I lose my human visage. So like I become this white figure and I'm floating up. And as I reach the top, and now I'm watching this all happen from like a painter's canvas point of view. When I get to the top of that canvas, a hand stops me. You're not done yet. And pushes me back down. And everything happens in reverse. And then I wake up. And I'm like, shit, I'm back here again. And at the time, I didn't understand what that meant. But now looking back on it, I'm just like, wow, my purpose wasn't done. So now I'm here having a conversation with you. Yeah. I'm glad too. So you were like, oh crap, now there's something more I have to do. And did, do you think that inspired you to keep looking for things to do? Or did you see the world differently? What was going through your mind afterwards? And what did you notice in your world? Well, immediately afterwards, it was a immense amount of pain. Like on a scale from one to 10, it was like a 37. So they had a spinal tap in my brain and they were draining fluids. But like I said, it wasn't until after the second surgery and the third surgery in 2017, where I started to put the pieces together to do something. During that time, you know, after that surgery, they put me on Oxycontin and Fearset and things like that. So I, I, I dwindled into an addiction, which was shielding me from accepting or interacting with or counteracting the trauma that was living in my mind and body. And then I was able to kick that habit cold turkey. And then I went on to finish college and then it grew back. And I was just like, oh my God, like how does so, it keep happening? So 2016, you had a surgery. And 2015, you had a, I had a 15. Yeah, sorry about that. 2015, you had the surgery and then they give you all these opiates and and you become addicted. How did you know you were addicted? It's really, it's really interesting. I remember one moment while I was at like a party and I looked in my, my jeans pocket and that was a pill bottle. And I remember just being like, oh, well, let me just pop these and take a few. And I sat outside of the party and I kind of just slumped over. And it was just like, I was taking that Percocet whenever I felt like I was getting too close to my real feeling. And it was more like a psychological dependence, more so than a physical dependence, like a chemical need for them. It was like just a form of extreme escapism. And that's when I knew, but there was that mind, that the voice again, that, that drive for success. And it was just like, yeah, this isn't going to serve you in the long run. You can't get what you need to get to if you keep doing this. And that voice got louder and louder and louder. And then one day I just flushed everything and gave myself no option to do it anymore and I just had to suffer and that's when I dealt you know the emotional drop off was really hard and I wrote a suicide letter and luckily I had people around me to stop me from doing it but you know when I no longer had that barrier from my emotions I just had to face it all at one time it's like if you're numb from pain and you're constantly getting beat up 
at some point you have to feel that pain and it all came in one wave. But uh, it was a difficult journey, but I was able to kick everything cold turkey and absorb the pain. I cried myself on being able to deal with that and, you know, persevere and show resilience and get in there. But then the following year, that was 2016 when I kicked that addiction. The following year, I had that mask grow back and here we go again. Here right. Go again. So, so real quick though, when you were taking that medicine, you did have real physical pain, it sounds like, and you had emotional pain. And at some point, it sounds like what you're saying is your need for the medication and when you would take it shifted from when you were feeling that physical pain to that emotional pain. And then you were just trying to numb it. Am I get? am I on the right track? Absolutely. Because okay. when I got out of the hospital, the first couple of weeks, I was on a scheduled medication. I was supposed to be taking it. But when I got back to school and I had to face other people and interact and they had questions, like that's when I found the script in my desk for Percocet. And that's when I started abusing the opioid. So it was really hard for you to face these people asking questions? Yeah, because like I just was tired of answering the questions and then I didn't have any real credible answers. I still wasn't at a point where I was paying attention to what the doctors were saying about my prognosis. I just wanted to move on and it felt like a dead weight I was carrying around. But it was very much alive, as you can see, <laughs> the following year. But it just, I wanted to separate myself from that. But I, I had, after dealing with this, I realized I was never going to set myself, separate myself, but I was just going to have to learn from it and find a better purpose and uh, use my pers the perspective that I developed to do something else with it. Right. So when you stopped all that medicine, I'm assuming people still had questions for you. Maybe they always have questions for you. I'm not sure. I mean, what's it like a day in the life of Kawan Glover? Now so much, you know, I can kind of be like, yeah, I can tell you the story or I can give you the book and you can read about all the stuff that I know from that perspective. And, and you know, that's a good thing about writing a book. But even after, after I stopped those pills, it was more like a self-isolation where I had to face my own demons before I can go out and face the community of people that obviously had questions. Some people, I can tell they were even afraid to ask questions. And in that, eventually, I just became more vulnerable, more open about my situation. And the thing about people who have an experience any type of disability, once they see you walking around and able to do stuff, it's just like, oh, he's fine. But I was really struggling. And it's what you call an invisible illness sometimes. And that's what's really the biggest struggle. When people couldn't physically see you struggling, because you were up and walk around being productive, but you were on the inside being tormented by your own demons. Yeah. Now, what were some of those demons for you? There was a constant negative voice, like, you're never going to be whole again. You're never going to have a wife. Never going to be, you're, you're going to be a terrible candidate for a father. Uh, you're in school for this degree, but you're never going to use it. This is what you get. You deserve this. Those, those kind of negative thought loops. And, you know, it comes from being successfully driven. You're often self-critical. And because of the state I was in, those voices were amped up to a level that I didn't plan or prepare for. So it was debilitating. Like, I would be up and walking around and doing what I need to do. But in my mind, the conversation would be like, you suck. Like, right. this is all your fault. Like, why are you here? I know why you're here, because you suck. And it was just that constantly, constantly constantly. So that was the biggest demon I had to face. 
Yeah, so how did you shift out of that? I don't know where I came across Brene Brown's. Yeah, I came across her book and some of her work and her research around shame. And I realized that I was shaming myself. I was not the problem. It was not, I am not the reason this happened. I am me. These things happened to me. And then I was slowly able to get away from that shaming mindset into maybe I was guilting myself. And then one day, I want to say it was August of 2019. And later, I was laying in my bed, looking up at my ceiling in my apartment in College Park. And I looked up and I was just like, none of this is my fault. These things happened to me and I had no control of them ever happening. And I am choosing to let them go. And then in that instant, it was just like, boom. I was just like, whoa, a weight has been lifted. And, you know, I'd already started writing the book at that point, but I had stopped because I was just like, who wants to read this crap? And then in that moment, I was just like, I have to finish the story because there's something here that someone else may need. I saw somebody say this, and I think it resonates with me. I'm an open book because I never know who's going to need a chapter. Mm -hmm. So I put all my chapters in my book, and I gave it to the world. That's awesome. I love that. (laughs) That resonates with me, too. In fact, it reminds me, I interviewed uh, Sahara Lee, and she wrote a poem called Tattered Cover that talks about how uh, she didn't, in the poem, it talks about how she didn't want a title on her book because then you could decide what that book, what she meant to you, right? Because it's going to be different for each person that, that you come into contact with. So it was a, it's a really neat poem if you have a chance. She's one of the first few episodes on the podcast and she actually reads it to us in her, with her inflection. I don't know how much you love poetry, but I thought that was a really, really neat poem. So... I think that when you're struggling with these demons, so 2019 is after the last surgery, right? When you finally are like, okay, I'm gonna, I gotta step out of this, this mess. Now, I'm thinking those thoughts came back off and on because when we were talking earlier, you're still finding your balance is what you said. So I'm thinking that once a decision is made and and you know which direction you're going, sometimes you still end up your mindset back in that that not fun place and you have to shift back. How do you do that? It's definitely a interesting balancing act because your mind has a negativity bias and that was meant for you to survive. So when something doesn't go as well as I expected, sometimes your mind is just like, well, you did that. You, you know what happened. You know why that happened because you're not good enough. And that, that voice starts to get louder and louder and louder. But what I really become obsessed with is gratitude and, and more specifically serotonin and that that presence of joy that you get from just embracing the present moment, meditation, daily routine, journaling. Those are the things that I do to help rebalance when I become unbalanced. There are days when my mind is like, what are you getting out of bed for? Like there's nothing you can do today that would change anyone's lives. Mm. And Those thoughts find me when I am not being active. So when I'm going to bed or I haven't slept well, those thoughts really creep in and like, we got you now. But I have gotten to a place to meditation practice where I'm like, you know, I'm not really interested in having this thought pattern right now. And they stop. Okay, so I, I heard a couple of things. The most interesting was meditation practice got you to the point where you could recognize the thought process and say, yeah, I'm not interested in that thought right now. I'm going to let it go, basically. And then I'm wondering, like, 
because I heard you talk about waking up or not sleeping well. I'm wondering if you still suffer from pain and if that also impacts that mindset. I don't suffer much from physical pain, but psychological pain is registered the same way. So when I have those negative thought loops right before bed or as I'm falling asleep or when I'm waking up or still working in the morning, it's still a certain type of pain. But, you know, practicing a meditation and mindfulness and gratitude, writing down things I'm grateful for, allows me to see that there's more to life than what I'm thinking about. And the thoughts are not my own. These thoughts are not original. I didn't come up with negative thoughts. People have them every day. But it just matters how you show up for yourself. A lot of mirror work, a lot of introspection, a lot of conversation with myself in my head. And it, it, it becomes like, when it comes to pain, when I feel physical pain, it may hurt. But then in my mind, I'm breaking down, hmm, why does pain feel this way? What are the receptors thinking about? When I break down to that scientific, scientific technical level, the pain is doesn't feel like pain anymore. It's more of an experience. And it's like, that's interesting. I wonder why that hurts them. And then I'm able to have a thought process separate from the pain, and then it fades. So when I have those negative thoughts, I'm like, huh, I wonder where that thought came from. Let's trace it back to the source. So you become curious about those negative thoughts, basically. And when you become curious and you try to investigate, then you find, well, maybe there was no beginning and it just popped into my mind and I don't need to pay attention to it. Yeah, it's almost like the more you tell yourself not to think about something, the more you think about it. But when you say, okay, let's dive into that, it's like your thoughts cower. Your negative thoughts cower. It's like, oh, he's, he wants to see if there's something more. But we're not that deep. So I'm going to leave now. Thanks. Right. I, I feel very powerful when I'm able to do that. That's awesome. I hadn't thought of that that before. Like, I, I thought about being curious about the thoughts, but I don't think I realized how often they do leave. And, and I like how you're like, they thought cowers to me. <laughs> That's a little shift in the perspective that makes sense to me. Okay. So you finished writing the book and everything. You, I'm... I'm thinking that took courage and bravery to be vulnerable. Were you really nervous and scared to put it out there? Or once you put it out there, did you kind of want to hold back and be like, oh my gosh, I just put out there who I am? Yeah, when I was writing, I, I remember the exact day I started, July 18th, 6.54 a.m. 2018. And I didn't publish it till August 4th, 2020. And, you know, I thought it would take a while for Amazon to upload the book. So I had like a week to prepare and to any rebuttals and just put out there. And then August 5th, I got an email from Amazon. Hey, your book is available for purchase. And I was like, oh no, oh no, no, no. And you know, a lot of things in my life that helped me get through things, it's just dumping in deep in. Like it was already out there. There was no taking it back. I wasn't about to unpublish it. And I just decided to like a swim. And you know, it was amazing. Like I've had people say, this should be a movie. I've had people say, I can relate so much to this. This saved my life. I've really had those conversations. And the more, you know, I hear those conversations and the value that it brings to people's lives, it reaffirms me that no matter how I felt about the book or about my journey, there was a reason that it came out when it did and gave me no choice to take it away because once it was out there, I think it really started changing people's lives. And, uh, you know, and that's my mission, my purpose. Like, if I can inspire one person or I can save one life with my story, then uh, my purpose has been served. So 
there was a lot of nerves, but I also got compliments on the fact that the people around, they like, how did you remember so much? And there were, this is where it got there. And I'm just, when I'm writing in the book, there were waves of like memory that I don't have access to anymore. Like how did I remember what color people were wearing at a certain time, you know? But once I put it out there, the fear dissipated because the value I was giving the people with that book really uh, showed me that this is what I needed to do. So it sounds like in some ways, owning your disability and owning your journey, and then when you put it out there, it was like a full-on acceptance of who you've become now. Absolutely. And acceptance is the key that unlocks the door to healing. Because a lot of times we spend like denying this and avoiding it and not, a, you know, not facing and accepting our reality. But once you do that, then you can start to heal and accept a new person or a new being you become with that perspective. And so I talk a lot about the three P's, perseverance, patience, and perspective. I think perspective is the most powerful one because for me, it's self-empathy. Yesterday, I was not able to do this, but look where I am today and acknowledging that, hey, I made progress. I made progress. So healing is acceptance is necessary for healing. So I want to investigate that word healing because I think in a lot of people's minds, healing means gaining back what you previously had. And I'm not certain that's necessarily true. What are your thoughts? First of all, healing is not a destination. Healing is something that continues throughout life. There's always going to be something you're healing from because there are things in life that you don't even know damage, but healing is a journey. Healing doesn't mean I'm going to get my right arm 100% back to health. I mean, I, I say that, I manifest that, but if it doesn't, it's not going to change me. Healing is a uh, mental, emotional, and spiritual connection to your higher self. Uh, healing allows you to accept but also move forward with purpose in your journey, whatever you're healing from, like uh, being an addict, healing from an addict, it's mean, hey, I'm a thousand days sober. And using my story about that to inspire, healing is it's so deep and layered. It's not just, hey, I'm getting back what I lost. You're getting back something in spades in maybe different areas. Healing doesn't have to come back to you in the way you want it to because it often comes back to you in a different area, often including something greater. Right? So healing may not be the physical healing that we think of, right? Like when you go to the doctor, you get a pill, you expect to be healed, right? Or you have surgery and you expect to be healed. Healing is much deeper. This is what I think I'm hearing you say. It is way deeper and it's on a spiritual level. And it's about who you were meant to become, not necessarily who you thought you were supposed to become. Am I on the right track? Absolutely. Healing is bringing you cl closer to your true self. You know, there's the ego and then there's the self. And healing brings you close because you're breaking down those barriers, the expectations, what you thought was supposed to happen, what you wanted to happen, and to what actually is happening and what actually you're supposed to be. So healing brings you that much closer to your true self. I think that's that's a really awesome perspective. Okay, if you had three tools or tips to give to the audience today of things you would like them to most definitely walk away from our conversation with. Okay, so one, there is no such thing as the past in the future. Though the past exists in your memories, the future exists in your imagination. 
All there is is the present moment. Live there and reap the rewards of life that are right in front of you. I think, two, the darkest night often comes before the brightest morning. And no matter how dark your night seems, no matter how desolate or despairing that darkness feels, that's where the light shines, the brightness, and your morning is coming. So keep up the fight because there's always, always, always hope. And the last one is write down a list of the five things you love the most. And if you aren't on that list, if you're not number one on that list or number two, depending on your religion, find out why. And then find a way to put yourself at the top of that list. So live in the present moment, accept the darkness, look for the light, and love yourself. That's awesome. I'm so glad I got to have you on today, Kawan. You're a light in my life right now. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope your audience, everyone that's listening, and you got some real value out of this. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We really enjoyed talking to Kawan about how he continues to heal and give others hope. We especially liked when he explained how healing is more than physical and brings us closer to who we are meant to be. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on Facebook. Look for Damaged Parents. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.